Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Mank, starring Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, and Charles Dance. Written by Jack Fincher and directed by David Fincher. First film from him, finally. <laughs> Strange that this is the one we started with. Excellent. Yeah, that might have been a mistake. <laughs> but but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to wrap up our 2020 catch-up cask with uh, the Netflix release, Mank, uh, which came out, I believe, at the beginning of December. But this is all part of this cast to catch up on stuff we didn't get to see in 2020. And man, I'm always just surprised whenever we wrap up these casts. I always feel like we just started them and then another one in the books and another bourbon bottle in the books yeah but we're going to do something differently that way we can kind of accurately log what we've tasted so um i've already kind of filled out like most of like the the information that way we have like a nice record of it but we need to just kind of give this thing a flavor profile and any kind of ancillary notes that way if we ever want to come back to it or reference it in a best of we have a a record now (laughs) essentially writing a bourbon screenplay there you go so cheers matt cheers jesse cheers everybody hopefully you all are drinking a cup of coffee and not bourbon at 10 30 in the morning or whatever time it is but if you are more power to you it's still good what do you what do you taste in that like what what type is that is that is that a little more sweet to you or a little a little more spicy let me go again go ahead I got to smell it a little too. So mm-hmm. hold on. Cause that, that one's a little, a little woodsy for me. Like I can kind of, I definitely pick a little honey up right away, but there is a smoky feel in there that I think is what you're calling the woodsy. I get the smoky same thing. Um, it, okay. This is weird. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, my smoker when I do mm. tri-tip with mesquite. There you go. Yeah. And that what whatever that means. Well, the next time you make that, maybe you should have a bottle of this. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I'll make the tri-tip and smoke it. You bring the bourbon and we'll do it all together. Sounds good. All right. Excellent. That does sound good. How would you rate this bottle out of rock gut, well, call, single barrel, or top shelf? We'll this, give it a rating. This truly has a very unique flavor to me. So you think in kind of single barrel? Yeah. I'm not sure about quality. It's good. What, the, what surprises me the most, and I'm glad it, there's a section on here for price, $30 bottle. I mean, that's like, you're getting a lot of different complexities for 30 bucks. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm not at all unhappy with this. And to go just neat straight up for $30, that's a bit risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't recall a bourbon flavor that's unique. Some of that stuff kind of blends into the same sort of place in my mind not this this is different excellent good where where are you at what do you got it i i I feel the same way i mean i had seen people post about this particular bourbon and um i was interested in all the different um options that they did offer for it and their blue corn and their rye which is apparently really good so i was like i just want to try the just the the first like just the, the start out one and i was definitely surprised at how, how how decent it was. So I have a couple bottles at home that I think would be next, but okay. I want to consider finding this and I'll take care of it. I got a recommendation from a buddy of mine named Joe. Okay. It's called Burning Chair. Okay. 
and highly, highly recommended. And I think this is the one that I'm going to try to score us a bottle of okay. and we'll roll with next. Sounds good. Um, I think that's what I want to try. That sounds great. All right. All right. Real quick, just some uh, listener responses from top three Nolans. Mr. Brett R. He has a number three, Inception. Number two, Batman Begins. Number one, The Dark Knight. Matthew Stevens says Memento is one of his all-time favorites. John, boy, Matt. Jonathan P., the number three, The Prestige. Number two, Inception. Number one, The Dark Knight. I, like, I'm glad he included The Prestige. That's that's one that's grown on me a lot over the years. And Blake, number three, Memento. Number two, Dark Knight. And number one, Inception. As we kind of discuss, it's like it's kind of hard to find a bad one in there. You know what I mean? So the interchangeable, I like how they're different, but the same at the same time. Like even with our lists. I love that that came up in what you just said, because I think the director we're going to get to today in the nightcap, I'm sorry, in the happy hour, Fincher had a trajectory that should have been similar. And I think that what Fincher was early and what the promise that that career held for me is what materialized in Nolan. Mm -hmm. And man, there have been two very divergent paths that they've gone. I'm not saying David Fincher is a bad director. Please do not misconstrue what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. But there's a world of difference between absolutely promise and practice. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of disappointing. Because where I think, like, if you had to rank them, I think Nolan would be one to your Fincher's number two, and it'd probably be the reverse for me. Mm -hmm. But your team's winning in this, Jesse. I know. Maybe we can talk about that in this episode. But let's go ahead and get started with our flight question. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Uh, it's gorgeous, isn't it? <laughs> Excellent. Uh, go ahead and hit us with the flight question this week, Matt. Flight question this week is um, your favorite golden era Hollywood writing story slash production in film. So what's the story behind the movie? <clears throat> regarding the writing that produced a quality film that you enjoyed from the golden era of Hollywood. And we're going to define that from 39 to 60 ish. Should we say? Yeah. Is that close enough to the way I told you on the phone? Mm -hmm. All right. You want to go first? Yeah, that sounds great. Number three for me. uh, One of my favorite films from this particular actor. It's one, Mr. James Cagney and it's white heat. And primarily the reason it was the writers got six months to just go write this, which is, maybe similar to what happened in this film. Uh, But the best part of the story is that Cagney was, I don't want to say washed up, but looking for another kind of hit. I mean, he had done kind of gotten away from the gangster films. He didn't want to be typecast and then kind of thought that was a good way back in. And the only reason he took this was because him and Jack Warner, the head of Warner brothers uh, studios hated each other. Mm. And so he took this role purely out of spite for the head of the studio, which I love stuff like that. Oh, yeah. So, Stick it to him. And especially James Cagney. Like, what a character. And I, w- I would love to sit and have a glass of bourbon with that man. Mm. I love White Heat. It is, it's one of my favorite films of that era. Um, I made it my top of the world. Boom. Boom. That's how I want to go out. <laughs> it's a good way to do it. 
incestuous and edible. Yeah. <laughs> and explosive. <laughs> Fantastic. This is not one of my all-timers, but I have to give it credit. It has ascended a special place in film pantheon history, and it's Casablanca. Uh, what's up, 42? Yep. Look, I don't need to get into the breakdown of Casablanca, but the thing that is the most amazing about that for me is that baby was written on the fly. Pages being turned in as they were shooting the previous scene. We are writing it right now. That's really difficult. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think that's an entirely simple AB concept that you could just, well, it's a romantic comedy, so now we have to break them up so we can get them back together story beats. That's a fairly complex plot that was delivered terrifically well. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this is the answer in that case. Okay. If the studio executives would have just got the hell out of the way on many more such projects mm -hmm. and let the writers who were talented do what they were supposed to do, yeah. would we had even more? Because I'm literally saying, yeah. okay, we just finished that scene. What's next? Here's the pages. Mm -hmm. That fresh, we're talking hot, mm -hmm. piping hot mm -hmm. off the presses. That's really a remarkable achievement in my book. Who's the star of that movie? Claude Rains? Never, <laughs> never heard of him. He's never visible in his films. Great. I love your, I love, I love that. Okay. Let's nope. hear your number two. Number two is actually going to be uh, for me, Sullivan's travels. Written, you love that film. Interesting. Written and directed by Preston Sturgis. Um, the kind of the whole story behind this was, you know, Preston Sturgis was kind of writing a film in response to, the over preaching he found in comedic films of the era. So, you know, he took this book, um, uh, which is, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and essentially tried to adapt that into the quest to make that movie and kind of based it off the stories of actors John Garfield, who essentially lived as a hobo prior to making it big. Mm -hmm. I love Sullivan's Travels. It's poignant, it's hilarious, it's a look at glam Hollywood. Veronica Lake is amazing. Yeah. Uh, 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 that that whole cast and um, it's it's just a unique comedy of of the of the era with a, like a cool message at the end. Uh, yeah, that's my number two. I would love to I would love to talk about that one one of these days. Like maybe like a comedy cask of the forties with like Philadelphia Story and that one could be a lot of fun. The Apple Truth. Yeah, I think I'd like that cask a lot. Mm -hmm. Good choice. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting film, and I think that everyone should see it. That's not at all what you think it's going to be when it starts off. Mm -hmm. Number two for me, Sunset Boulevard. We're playing a little bit touchy with the golden era here, but it's... Uh, no, it's still. Definitely. Are you going to give it to me? I'll give it to you. Thank you. Billy Wilder is the most underappreciated great all-timers ever. That movie and the self-referential state that pervades the entire opening and the rest of it about the screenwriter caught in a noir, stuck trying to rekindle the flames in the expired actress. Where do we begin with the state of what the industry was mm -hmm. and taking and something that I think is really troubling for Hollywood and it's their inability to deliver non-self-aggrandizing stories about themselves. Yeah. That movie doesn't. Mm -hmm. and, but it doesn't revel in the pity party or wallows in the misery of it either. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that's another director that I really want to do. Yeah, that's a whole two-part task. <laughs> Man, then where do we start and stop with yeah, that? There's a lot to get in, in the weeds with there. I love it. That's yeah. one of my favorite of, of his. We really. have not talked about that film enough on here, mm-hmm. or him in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about him today. Maybe even to number one, too. Go ahead, Jesse. Let's hear your number one. My number one from writer-director John Houston. This is going to be Treasure of the Sierra Madre. For sure. This is my favorite film from the Hol- the golden age of Hollywood. Wow, really? Of the entire era. So this was, it's based on a book uh, from the from the 30s, uh, uh, from a German author, but it reminded uh, Houston so much about fighting, and I didn't know this, in the actual Mexican cavalry, like in his youth. And he wanted to make this, and the studio was shoving Edward G. Robinson and John Garfield down his throat, but then World War II happened. And he was one of those guys, uh, much like Frank Capra and John Ford, that went over and made you know war films uh, uh, to be shown in the, th- in the theaters. So he came back, and who's one of the biggest movie stars of all time when he comes back? Claude Rains. <laughs> yes, starring Claude Rains. <laughs> but no, Humphrey Bogart. So I, I love that it essentially becomes this story about you know Fred C. Dobbs and Humphrey Bogart, but then a vehicle for his dad, who absolutely just kills... His, his role in that, to win an, an Academy Award. You know, like, I can't imagine the, the like, you know, the father-son moments between the two of them, and to, to share that type of experience together must have just been so special for the two of them. So um, I love it. The last shot of that film alone is just gives you chills. All that work to watch it blow away. Mm-hmm. Really good choice. Mm-hmm. Um. You know you love that scene when he gives CPR to that little boy. Well, you actually just took it. I was going to just make a smart-ass <laughs> remark about And there's also a very metaphysical, homeopathic version of CPR in that film. Yeah. If you ever drown someone, you need to find a little small Spanish village mm-hmm. and do a pumping of arms, and it will bring the person back from the dead. There you go. <laughs> What's your number one? The Lost Weekend. So let me give you all the backstory on this. Okay. The Lost Weekend is one Academy Award away from being one of, what, the third film that's won all five. It didn't win Best Actress. Okay. But it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best, um, what am I forgetting? Whatever one I'm forgetting. Actor. Did not win Best Actress, mostly because there's not one. Mm-hmm. But That's that close. One. Yeah. Missed it by one. Adapted Screenplay, we could maybe, whatever, you get it. Those, those are big ones. It's close. Mm-hmm. It's the follow-up to Billy Wilder's 1944 Double Indemnity. Now, this is where the story gets great for me. Double Indemnity is a pulp novel written by a man named James M. Cain. And we talked about it in the show. Right? We did Double Indemnity some years ago. We didn't. Or, man, or, I can't believe I forgot about this. Started started to derail you, but. Yeah. Happy two-year anniversary. Is that today? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> wow. Two years. Yeah, two years. Today's two years. It is, yep. Yeah. 106 episodes. I'm pretty sure it was like last Tuesday I gave us those glasses. I know. That was a year ago. Man. Cheers to you. Cheers to you, buddy. Cheers to all of you out Mm -hmm. there, too. Thank you. I meant to do that at the beginning. I'm sorry. And somewhere around 70,000 downloads, too, Mm -hmm. that are countable. Yeah. God, really? It's awesome. Think about that. I know. I'm I'm, I'm having just the, the time of my life doing this. I love it. It's just you and me. Yep. Like two idiots in the room listening to jazz, drinking bourbon, and playing film snob. I wouldn't say we're idiots. <laughs> Depends who you ask, I okay. guess. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Thank you to all, all the listeners out there. 
Thank you, everybody. Okay, back to double indemnity. Mm -hmm. Billy Wilder finds that script and decides to adapt it into a screenplay, and there's tons of problems around the salacious material and this and that, but the biggest problem on there is the tyrannical nature of Billy Wilder dealing with Raymond Chandler, Mm -hmm. also a pulp writer but chosen to be the screenwriter for this. Raymond Chandler's a recovering alcoholic, clean for some time, Mm -hmm. not sure the dates, but like recently clean. And Wilder is such an oppressive bastard tyrant with impossible to meet demands that he drives Chandler back to the bottle. Mm -hmm. And so that just makes things even worse. And it got to the point where Billy Wilder was literally over his shoulder watching every stroke on the keyboard to make sure that Raymond Chandler produced some work that was usable. Oh my God. Disaster. Yeah. Of, so he fires him and brings James M. Cain, which who he should have just hired anyway because it was his story, mm-hmm. to come in and finish it up. Yeah, That's not the movie. The movie's The Lost Weekend. The Lost Weekend is the follow-up for Wilder to that, and it deals with, ready for this, everybody, mm-hmm. an alcoholic screenwriter struggling to meet a deadline. And it is Billy Wilder saying, hey, Chandler, F you, and I'm going to make a movie about you. Not only is that all of the critically acclaimed film award stuff that I mentioned, it was also the end of Raymond Chandler's career in Hollywood. But it's a terrific film, expertly played by... It's in my top three of Billy Wilder films. I love it. Ray Moland is great as Raymond Chandler, (laughs) but not Raymond Chandler titled. Mm -hmm. And who can forget the jonesing and the hallucinogenic... um, effects that he's going through when he's trying to get clean the bat and the mouse on the wall and that's my favorite story because to take what is and i think double indemnity is a better film Mm -hmm. than the lost weekend but the context of the lost weekend is so superior and that billy wilder had the ability Mm -hmm. to take it middle finger raymond chandler and create a really strong movie that's way out of its time way too hard for that period oh no yeah Hayes Cope? yeah how does that get made i mean we're talking about you know plenty of bells and whistles and even jimmy cagney's cutting like musicals at that point that's you know where we're kind of playing <laughs> <Thank> you, doodle dandy <laughs> right yes and we decide yeah to bust this movie we're out. gonna make a bender weekend movie oh my god that it deals with like sleeping with women to get money i, I mean it's that movie is those scenes of him just sitting at the bar alone are just like enough for me that's another cask, isn't it? The addiction cask. Yeah. And whether well, it's... It, it's got to be telling to you when I tell you my top three wilder films are Some Like It Hot, Ace in the Hole, and Lost Weekend. and But there's still also Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, The Apartment also out there. You know what I mean? Like the guy's got a killer filmography. So you set me up perfect because I thought about this this morning. And let me just echo that sentiment in one regard. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked at AFI in a while, but per AFI, if you're the director of the greatest comedy ever, Some Like It Hot, mm-hmm. and the quintessential film noir, mm-hmm. Double Indemnity, and neither of those yeah. are your most critically acclaimed film, which would then be this, The Lost Weekend for Wilder. It's pretty good. And we are talking in rarefied air. Mm-hmm. We do not give him <clears throat> enough credit. No, that guy rocks. Do we agree? Yeah, no, like he's like... Him and Brian De Palma, we probably should give them a whole lot more credit. Like, I think we like their films more than we than we think we do. And the one that you bring up all the time that I've still yet to see is Ace in the Hole, and so, we are going to do that so amazing someday. Okay, yeah. To those choices, what a tears. Yeah, list. I love that. I'd like to see the making of those movies, maybe more so than the film we're about to start talking about right now. Boy, yes, sir. All right, so let's just jump right into it. I said, um, 
because we're go- I'm going in raw too along with you, so the sound's going to be just a little limited. So it's just going to be us riffing this week. So let's get into our review breakdown of Mank. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the film starts out <laughs> awesome. uh, with something I really like, and I'm going to give the film a decent amount of credit to to kind of start out. Matt, I've said many times on this podcast, the one thing I would never want to do is make an, a period-era film just because to make it look like that is a lot of effort and work and money. David Fincher does a great job to make this look like 1940s-era California Hollywood. I mean, from the film stock, which is, I think, still digital. I mean, he's a very proponent of digital filmmaking. But the cars, the clothing, even the editing style, the music choices by... Uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, they feel they it feels like a film from nineteen this era, which is pretty cool. And I think it also yes, absolutely. I think it for me it also fits the tone that Citizen Kane is, and that's the story that we're kind of playing with mm-hmm. here. The writer of Citizen Kane. For those of the people that have never seen that film, it is unique unto the cinematography in it, and there's a lot of different POVs that Wells and Co use to make Citizen Kane. And what really struck me in this film is that sequence where Mankiewicz is playing um, poker with the flipping of the coin Mm -hmm. and that shot where the quarter rolls on the floor and we are down at that level and it comes in and out of the field of vision. Great shot. That is pure Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. So in the watching of this film, the aesthetic of it, it is spot on with what that era of, of California looks like. I think the studio system is represented authentically per what I've seen from photos that are dated mm-hmm. back from 1930-ish. And it's also spot on with what that story in the film world, the production of Citizen Kane, fits or shows. You know, you, are you with me there? Oh, absolutely. One thing I did notice, and this is kind of a callback to another David Fincher film, but I noticed the... So back in the day when you used to have to project movies, I mean, you literally have... You're working off two projectors. And back then in the day, your only warning was the the circles in the top right. Right. In Fight Club, Brad Pitt goes into a great sequence where he calls them cigarette burns. Mm-hmm. And it cues the projects projectionist to queue up the other projector. You get one warning and then like five seconds later you get the other one and then you queue up the other projector because this one's going dark. Right. This film had that. Yeah. And so like like we're talking about the aesthetic. I mean and it wasn't like grainy like like to make it look like that. I mean we're just using some filmic decisions to make it look of the era and I thought they succeeded in that regard. So let's talk about the other thing you just mentioned there. Mm-hmm. And that's the choice of director for this movie. Well, to talk about that, we probably need to talk about who the screenwriter is at the same time. Go ahead. So I am unaware of any other thing that uh, screenwriter Jack Fincher has written, but in research, this is the father of David Fincher. So we're already playing in a in a, in a space, and it's so fitting because the film is, this has to be just s- such a passion project for David Fincher. I'm going to work in it. I don't care how long it's going to take. I think I had told you... He wanted to make this after the game, which is 97, mm-hmm. uh, with Kevin Spacey and 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 co. But he, he didn't get to make it until until now. So it's it's such a passion project for him to to finally bring this to the screen. The problem being is, you know, I expect a certain type of nastiness for my David Fincher film. Yeah. Which is interesting because he does film um, more recently on digital, but his films have an edge to them, which is hard to describe. 
And as of late, I feel like since Zodiac, I feel like that edge has been missed. It was in the social network. I think it was there. But whether that be Gone Girl, uh, I take that back too because Girl with the Dragon Tattoo definitely has an edge to it. But like since then, it's kind of been gone. And I miss that about his type of filmmaking. So when you sit down and watch this and maybe, I don't know, watch this if you want. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't feel like a David Fincher film for me. And that part kills me a little bit because we've waited seven, six years since Gone Girl to get a feature film from him. And this is not what I expected for multiple reasons. But first from the auteur aspect of what I get from watching his movies. Fincher's been busy for a while with Mindhunter. Mm -hmm. So he has been working. And House of Cards. And House of Cards. House of Cards certainly had that edge, and I liked it. And here's what's interesting. Obviously, that's a politically knowledgeable film and plays in that space. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he knows what he's doing there. Yeah. I would argue that this movie should have been written by Aaron Sorkin yeah. for what they tried to deliver. Okay? That doesn't... I'm, and I'm not belittling what this film was or wasn't and who directed it. It's an interesting choice, and sometimes that works out. In the same context, I don't want to also say passion projects involving your family members are often a disaster. I can point to Will Smith, and everybody will know what I'm talking about after Earth. Well, I just but I can also say anything by Christopher Nolan that mostly is really good because his brother writes it. I just mentioned Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I mean, that movie's right. great. Yeah. So okay, so there can be good and bad in that. The thing that's really interesting with the selection of Fincher is other than his ability to get something greenlit, mm -hmm. I feel like there's a tone, even with the Fincher stuff that I don't like, that you said just described as edgy. Mm -hmm. Whereas I would think Nolan is elaborate. We used that word last week, and so I'm going to stick with it because it really felt good and right to me. Fincher is edgy. Seven is the quintessential David Fincher edgy drama. This movie isn't, mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's the muted tones because it's in black and white, or I don't know, frankly, if it's the muted source content that is the wrong, and it's his choice and his father's choice. Yeah, That's not the story, and I'm going to be bombastic here, that anyone wanted <laughs> except the two of them. No, you're right. If we're going to do Citizen Kane, yeah. There's plenty of edgy stuff in there. Orson Welles is an edgy bastard. Well, let's stop. And then you add an alcoholic element to it. <laughs> Think about what we're talking about, Jesse. This is a version of The Lost Weekend, and that's an edgy film, yes? Yeah, and I, I want to talk about something that this film maybe happened to lock into, which is we're going to have to look up his name here because I don't know it. The actor they played to pick Orson Welles look it up right now. is amazing. Absolutely. This is not in the movie. To have more scenes of him and Mankiewicz, played by Gary Oldman, who's another great actor, would have been equally more interesting than what this film decides to go into. Now, I have a question for you, Matt, because Fincher, you know, all those films we just... Tom Burke is Orson Welles in this. You, Tom Burke. You might be my master distiller. <laughs> well, frankly... He's, he's in two scenes. That should be best supporting actor because that's the best Orson Welles that Orson Welles never even was. He's really? better at Orson Welles than Orson Welles is. Yeah, he was. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I have a question for you because all those films we rattled off. So Fincher, and I just want your honest opinion on this. Do you think a film's identity like between director and what he puts on the screen is more concrete when they also write the film too? Absolutely. 
because Fincher hasn't written any any of these films that that we rattle off. It's it's um Andrew Kevin Walker, it's yeah. Aaron Aaron Sorkin, it's uh James Vanderbilt in Zodiac. Mm-hmm. I mean, some good screenwriters. Sure. Uh but like where Nolan writes with his brother, um someone like um even John Carpenter, you know, he's written a lot of a lot of his stuff. But then I kind of come back to like Steven Spielberg and he's he's one too that doesn't necessarily write a lot of his materials. So do you feel like you get more of the director's kind of stamp on something when, you know, they're also writing and they're invested in it? I do. And let me back this up with your guy in the 1A versus 1B Nolan versus Fincher argument. Christopher Nolan has a stable of people that he works with that are going to appear in all of his films. That's why when we did Inception last week, I was saying I'm surprised that this part in the female wasn't played by Marion Cotillard. Oh, you mean Tenet? I mean, Tenet, sorry, yeah. I said Inception. But, but you know, she wasn't. You know, right? <laughs> okay, Inception. so exactly, kind of a Freudian slip there. Yeah. If you do that, then, and you work with the same writer and production team, which in most cases is his brother, I think you get a clear vision on what you want to produce. Now, the trap in that is every one of, and this is not the case with him, every one of Nolan's movies looks the same. That's not the case. They're not. They're, they're very different. You mm-hmm. can tell, mm-hmm. but they're different. Mm-hmm. You can also go the other way, which is supported and can be done really well by Steven Spielberg. Fincher chooses to go the Spielberg route. And the selection of his father's screenplay, which you said had been written like 20 years ago. Yeah, in the 90s. And has not found a home, can be any number of reasons. But mostly in this case, it might be that no one wanted to make it. Do you think you know, exactly? I mean, it, it's it's a hard sell when you get into the weeds on what the film kind of is because it really isn't about the making of Citizen Kane, which is kind of a shame, right? Because th- that's the film I thought I was going to watch. I mean, right. you did such a good job of setting up what this era looks like to not deliver on what is an interesting story. Working with a very huge ego in oh. Orson Welles <laughs> and William Randolph Hearst. David just, O. Selznick. Yeah, all these, all those guys. They're just total egomaniacs. With what you just said there, you mm-hmm. just brought up Orson Welles, mm-hmm. David O. Selznick, which would then be RKO versus MGM, mm-hmm. um, Irving Thalberg. We have many, many big personalities. William Randolph Hearst. Mm-hmm. Louis B. Mayer. And I'm going to tell you the personality that's highlighted the most, and this is a choice from the writing team, is Upton Sinclair. Yeah. And that's not that that's not an important personality in California at this time, and we'll get into that. That is not at all the story that I want for the Citizen Kane making. If you want to do the epic political platform, and that's the acronym for what we're going to get into here in just a little bit, then so be it. But don't showcase that as... The making of Citizen Kane. Because that doesn't play out except for maybe the last 15 minutes of the film. And the thing is, it could have, but it's it's it, everything is just so muted. You know what I mean? That's the most maddening thing for you and me. As I go back and listen to our podcast, the thing that you and I keep getting is you're all around that space. Dancing you around cho- it. Yeah. And you choose not to go ahead and let it rip with the music. Like you tease the dance and then you decide to go and play the banjo and never dance. <laughs> I don't even know what metaphor that is, but you know I what know, I'm getting I at. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Right. 
That's Wonder Woman, <laughs> 84. I mean, that's been like a lot of films we've talked about Instead lately. of a banjo, it's a synthesizer. Instead of a banjo, it's a magic talking rock. Hey, look, my boyfriend's back from the dead. Let's do fashion show. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, let's not talk about that again. But no, Oh, not. no, but do you think also, because this is such a vanity project that on the page, this is a hard sell to, to make, and you said it so well, Hollywood loves making films about themselves, and I like, there's some that in there that I do like. Uh because David Fincher has such a relationship with Netflix, with House of Cards and Mindhunter, and they're looking for content, and he is an auteur name that you can recognize by just the name, that they're willing to pony up whatever this film costs to make just to make it happen? And I think so. You know what I mean? It's very oscar Beatty type of oh, filmmaking. I guarantee you it's going to show up on those lists. Yeah, for sure. So, so I want to ask, go ahead. is Fincher okay in any other space? I shouldn't say okay. Let me rephrase that. Can you see Fincher finding success in any other space outside of these two genres? Drama, and I mean like drama, drama, or thriller? Do you Absol- see? Absolutely. I, I think Orson Welles, I think David Fincher could do like a really great science fiction film like Maybe science fiction thriller, but like something with like a, a space twinge to it. I'd like to see him take his uh, a, a stab at that. I agree with you. Yeah. Do you think any of the aforementioned other genre categories that we are referencing mm-hmm. include biopic? Maybe drama? I think it would depend upon who the biopic person is, which, duh. I mean, no one wants to know the biopic about your neighbor because well, no one cares. Well, but Well, he did do that with Social Network, but I think... You're literally being handed a screenplay by, by the, Aaron Sorkin, by one of the most talented screenwriters of all time. So that certainly helps. So all cards are off the table there. I'm Aaron Sorkin tra- is a little bit more talented than his dad. Yeah, that's that's a fair argument. I kept thinking this. Mm-hmm. Did they have the discussion in studio over direction that was similar to the one that was made with choosing Mark Webb to do Spider Man? Probably not because the probably the pitch was I have this screenplay that my dad wrote. No one else is directing this other than me. You know what I mean? But do you see what I'm kind of getting at? Like after mm-hmm. Mark Webb's huge like success with 500 Days of Summer and the indie kind of romantic comedy that that was, mm-hmm. I don't know if Spider Man's a natural fit. And he tried to kind they of tried s- to pitch it as a natural fit, and he kind of he kind of 500 Days of Summered it sorta. You know what's hilarious about like like I love that we're talking about Mark Webb and the Make podcast, but I can tell you next to nothing about that first Amazing Spider-Man. Right? It's how memorable that movie was. And then you is t- that a bad sign? Yes, it's a terrible <laughs> sign. And with that, you're given the keys to the kingdom in that universe, right? Which is Gwen Stacy's death. Oof. Okay, so the reason I'm drawing the correlation here <clears throat> is you're given the keys to the kingdom. In film-going history, Citizen Kane, the greatest movie that's ever been created per AFI's top 100. They both hold... And I'm willing to give them that that vote of confidence. It's a terrifically made film. This is a movie that I think succeeds if... And this is a ridiculous comment. If Sorkin writes it and somebody like... Who do I want to direct this? Denny Villanueva directs, I think this movie slays. Even Martin Scorsese would have. Okay, I thought about that too. Yeah, because he's another one that doesn't, not all the time, write his own stuff. I think the choosing of David Fincher, even the fact that he's done the social network, okay, is akin 
to ch- like kick in the tires on Sam Raimi for this project. I think it's a poor fit. Yeah. And then like when you add the element of family to it, did David Fincher have the stones? Cause it's family to say, dad, no, this scene is bullshit. Probably not. Cause he was still so green too. When this was probably being written. I mean, he was doing alien three. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to finish up this final train of thought and then we'll move on. Cause okay. I'm getting to the point I want to finally get to. Yeah. If you take a movie, that's the story of Hollywood being told by Hollywood from an A-list director that's a project written by his father. You are playing with overindulgence and zero restraint. This is Absolutely. this is yes men all around. You. Absolutely, yeah. And the movie suffers. Well, you're talking also about a director that has, uh, I don't want to say no restraint, but he's a stickler. Read anything about any David Fincher production since the advent of digital technology. Fincher will do 100 takes of a scene. Like, over and over and over and over again. And some people like that as actors. Some people, like, they do 10 and they're like, there's nothing else left to do here. What are you looking for? Good thing he didn't have Lily Tomlin on set. She might have David O. Russell. Oh, uh, she would have flipped out. Oh, that's like, I love that. It's <laughs> just a troubling piece of footage. And he's another kind of interesting character. But no, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's that kind of aspect to it, too, is mm-hmm. like he's such a perfectionist. So you're given the keys to the kingdom. It's a family vanity project. It's a passion project. It's finally getting made. You're going to do 100 takes of every single scene, literally, over the one of the most important pieces of cinema ever. And there's no one there to tell you to pump the brakes. Back it back down. Yeah, that's that's problematic. Do you think Kevin Spacey would have been better than Gary Oldman? Does that help? Uh I don't know. They, like, it, that, that would be interesting to see on sequence. I like Gary Oldman. Me too. I mean, we were really high on him with his Darkest Hour performance, and I call him El Cumilion because he just transforms into all these kind of characters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know about that one. Uh, had this been done in the early 90s, maybe it could have been better. And there's no Netflix involved, so maybe there is some studio restraint in the production of this film if it's made after the game. There was a really interesting moment for me that happened when we were watching this Mm. and we actually stopped it to have a brief discussion and I posed kind of a rhetorical question and it was more really of a rant than it was a question. Yeah. But we looked at the time in the film. We've been doing that a lot the last couple of weeks. And we were what, (laughs) 55 minutes in? Yeah. And I think my response was, oh my God, we still have, like, we're in an hour and it felt like an hour. And I didn't think we had gotten to the teeth of what that movie was portrayed to me as. Mm-hmm. We'd seen Wells twice at that point, and they were mostly, one was a phone conversation with no um, appearance on, and the other was another phone conversation with finally an appearance on. Well, he's him. doing something pretty inter- interesting that I'd like to see in the main movie that I want to see, which is he's doing screen tests for Heart of Darkness. I mean, Orson Welles was going to make Apocalypse Now years before anyone else was going to attempt such project. He was going to play Kurtz. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, when a movie is made and the beginning is based on or inspired by or this is a true account, that's a very loose accounting of what the story is. And there's some rules in the writing of the screenplay that go with that. But essentially, even if it says this is a true story, it's about 35% true. Yeah. 
One of the things that's really troubling with this film is because during the writing of the screenplay, Mankiewicz, who's been in an auto accident, is sequestered in a house, essentially laid up with a broken arm with a couple of attendees. He's not in the same room with Orson Welles. So the conversations, if you're going to adhere to what really happened in real life, they're not going to be together very much. So here's something interesting. No, but maybe we want them to be together. Well, this just, is, just lie. I just thought, yeah, just, <laughs> I mean, yeah, make, just make it just up. lie. Uh, this just came to me. So the whole kind of crux of this film is him. Yeah. You, you said auto accident. He's laid up hard drinking, like, which, you know, Gary Oldman's really good at doing because it wasn't what Churchill is hard drinking too. Sure. Uh, trying to write this, this, this screenplay and, and struggling mightily. And then he turns in a 523 page screenplay. Cool. And I did the math. It's a five and a half hour movie. It's <laughs> quite the story <laughs> that he wrote in 14 days. I would love to watch the movie of just trimming that down to 120 pages. That would be interesting to me. But okay, so there's a there's an interesting conflict at play here that never gets addressed in that Mankiewicz is tasked with writing this story. Uh, and he turns out that screenplay and Wells is literally going to swoop in and take it and take sole screenwriting credit for this thing. That's the story. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's the last, barely the last sequence of the movie. And then you know what you have with that, Jesse? Mm-hmm. You have a really simple, important part of story and an identified good guy and an identified bad guy. Yeah, exactly. Because then now what the bad guy is going to default to in is geopolitical theory. And there's not there's a story there too. Like I'm not trying to say there's not a story there. Yeah. But geopolitical theory through Mankiewicz as the writer championing the political beliefs of Upton Sinclair's run in the Democratic Party as a socialist. And again, some of that, by proxy, is inspirational, and you can see it in Citizen Kane. (sighs) To do that, you probably need another hour or an hour and a half to really get into the teeth of the Democratic primary and what the GOP in California was in 1934. I think that's the problem. Isn't and the, it? the EPIC, um, like EPIC as an acronym for In Poverty in California platform that, that Sinclair ran. There's a story there. And it can be championing and then how the in movie industry derailed that. And then we get into socialism versus capitalism and all of that stuff. Yeah. And <clears throat> none of that is what I care about with the personality of Orson Welles versus hard-drinking Joseph Mankiewicz. Sorry, Henry. What, um, Herman. Yeah, Herman Mankiewicz. Yeah in the production of one of the greatest films with one of the most troubled productions ever. And again, it's as simple as to David Fincher's father, who's my good guy and who's my bad guy. We're going to latch on to Gary Oldman as the good guy, but Jesse, here's the final thing on that. Mm -hmm. That's done by proxy too, because we find out that one of the two servants that he has in his house is this German refugee Mm -hmm. who he has paid for her entire village to come to the United States to escape Nazi occupation. But instead, mm-hmm. what I saw was... <sighs> well, that's the humanizing aspect of the film for him. And it works. But instead of that it's, and it's, celebrating the things that make what's it is we get a hockneyed it's presentation lost. of all of the names from 1934 Hollywood that mostly nobody gives a shit about because you and I are definitely in that space. Yeah. And 
as much as I like the occasional story about David O. Selznick, I don't want to watch a movie about him, but mm-hmm. I do want to watch a movie about Orson Welles. Yeah. And you don't get it. I know. Okay, that's a lot. Go. No, no, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, we talk about screenwriting a lot on this on this show, and one of the things is the resolution of your film. These ideas of what they were going for could have paid off big time. It's just the resolution isn't the hammer on the nail to seal the deal on why Mankiewicz would write Citizen Kane inspired by William Randolph Hertz. It's just kind of lost in the minutia of, and I think this is a problem of, of why it doesn't hit home. I think the film goes back and forth between 1940 and 1934 way too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some, there could have been some balance there, but I think that kind of kills the momentum that any of these sequences could derive. Because I, I'm with you. I, I the, My favorite parts of the movie are them just in the meetings. Like that meeting room with Oselznik when all the writer the writer's room, uh, they all walk in, they take a cigar, and they're just kind of taking pitches on like, what the hell are they going to do next? That's cool to me because like I, I've told you many times, like this is an era of Hollywood I would have loved to have lived in. Like oh, yeah. the glitz, the glam, they're still trying to figure it out. I mean, talking pictures are literally no joke, like 10 years old. Like it's so, it's such a new medium and it's so glamorized and it's so just smoke and bourbon and i just mm-hmm. want, i want to be a part of that and i like that scene when um they're, they're filming um this like they're going to burn uh, marion davies at the stake and they're filming the <laughs> some western movie they're filming some western they they're filming and their dollies like a, a literal train track a train caboose as they kind of film these uh um uh, bandits like kind of kind of come in like that's how they made movies back then and that's fun to watch they didn't do a hundred takes back in the day they no. did two and like hey we're good because <laughs> right this is a pain in the ass to set up and we got another movie we're starting on tuesday so get this thing in the can yeah it was a different era of making movies and i, I like that and I, I wanted to see more of that the film just gets so lost in so yeah we eventually get to so so you have all that at play and then we know he's writing citizen kane and then we're, we're looking for the through line in. We're looking for what's making everything tick. And then it, it's all set up with William Randolph first, which we know that already. We know he's the inspiration for Charles Foster Kane. And if you've ever been to the Hearst estate, I, I believe it's a tourable museum of sorts that you can still go to. It was the inspiration for Xanadu. Right. The man had a goddamn zoo on his property. <laughs> right. <laughs> which right. we spend too much time walking around in, in this uh, movie. Uh. But then, yeah, you're right. It becomes <clears throat> this this story about a political election uh, about yeah Upton Sinclair, who I, I I didn't even know that this uh, the writer of the Jungle was ever a candidate for any type of election of sorts. And the will they won't they of the studio influences to shift propaganda and whether this is the good or the bad thing, and then that's going to influence him to write Citizen Kane, whether that be true or not. You're right. That's not the movie I want to see. Right. I'd much rather see the screenplay was finished. Here it is, Orson. We're making the movie, and then that's the movie. Because that's way more interesting. If they want to do the Upton Sinclair political aspirations movie, do it. Yeah. Because you get into the jungle, and the the philo- that's called Milk. And he, Sean Penn did it really well. Mm-hmm. Like, you can do that movie. That's mm-hmm. a movie. That's not this movie. If you want to do what inspires Mankiewicz... And look, it's a self-titled film, so it's a character study. You have to recognize that. It's called Mank, so this is a character study. I was really hoping that there would be a bit more interest in what inspired him 
than what they chose to do. Because basically this looks like the quippy one-liner who is unhappy with the political leanings of the studio system at MGM in the 1934 era, pre-golden era, or right at the beginning of it, uh, yeah. as talkies start. <clears throat> and then the script that three standard deviations removed is the result of that. Yeah. <sighs> okay, so I want to bring up two things. Ford versus Fairlane. That wasn't a movie that I was crazy about. What I really thought did work Wait, for me. Ford pers- versus Ferrari? I mean, that's what I meant. Sorry. Ford, Ford Fairlane. Jesus I, Christ. Yeah. I, I like that movie. Okay. Yeah. We never did do that one, but no. maybe that's on the horizon at some point. I don't know. You know what I liked about it? Not to, this isn't the Ford versus Ferrari podcast, but I like just how so, how so rotten like things ended up at the end. You know what I mean? Yes. Like there wasn't winning the day in that movie. And I think what you're getting to is the part that I was just about to speak, mm-hmm. and that's in that movie, Shelby does a really good job of staving off Ford so that they can accomplish the task at hand, and he serves as the go-between to let the magic happen in the shop instead of the corporate endeavors of get it done. Mm-hmm. Why isn't Orson Welles portrayed as that in this film? Because that's, we get it a little bit. He's like, yeah, you better make sure you put your your house in your wife's name because they're going to sue the hell out of you and we're taking on this great thing. And let me give you one more thing. Real, if, can I interject? Yes, yes, bit? yes. I was extremely heartbroken when Christian Bale's character, I can't remember his name mm-hmm. right now, when he didn't win first place versus a, 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 a time technicality and he really got third place. Because the corporate... Endeavors of Ford screw him. The look on his face, and he's a great actor. Yeah, uh, it killed me. Like sure. I was like really kind of distraught by that moment. That that, that was something. They have to finish in a tie, and uh, what? Yes, uh, yeah. That makes you want to vomit. Yeah. Okay, that's in this movie because it's the studio system, especially where we see David O. Selznick portrayed by that guy who had, that guy's in everything at that role, buying up scripts to prevent them from being competition to the stuff that MGM is doing. So what's important in this is the coalition of forces between Mank and Wells in order to get Citizen Kane done. And the big turn, the second act reversal, is where Wells is going to screw Mank. This has also been done, Jesse. Mm -hmm. There's also a previous history of this. This is crazy, but let me give you, okay, if this is the golden age of Hollywood, let me give you another age of Hollywood to compare this to. The exploitation era in the early 1970s. And I'll give you Sweet Sweetback's Badass movie and the movie that was made in response to the making of that, Badass. Mm -hmm. This was that movie done way better with something that I gave a damn about. I'll give you another one. Go ahead. I'll give you the Red Scare. Adaptation. And it was Trumbo. There you go. The writing of Spartacus. So you and I are saying it's all around there. Which was also better than this movie. (laughs) There's volumes of stuff to go that has already laid the path forward, set a blueprint for you, and this chooses to not do it. I know. And so the frustration in my voice as my tone is going up clearly to the audience here is evident because it's maddening. And we just invested two and a half hours into a movie that gave me six and a half minutes. Yeah. At the end. In two scenes. This movie boils down to two scenes that I gave a damn about. The puking, the wine and fish scene at the dinner table, which I will also say is only bought off because Gary Oldman's such a good job at it. Because the other thing that you don't do in screenplays after you don't make it all a dream is have the dinner table fight sequence. Oh, the 
right? You don't, and then you, and then you don't clone Jesus. Those are the three things you don't do. Stooges skit, like right? (laughs) Yeah, you're. But they did that, and that's one of the better points. And finally, Jesse, we're going to get to Wells showing up to screw Mank, and that scene was pretty good. Well, let's just get to those two scenes because honestly, is there anything else in the rest of the movie you want to talk about? No, (laughs) it's such just. Do we want to take the people behind the scenes and tell them know what it was like when during the watching of this, what was happening? Well, no, we were just, it was, it was a surreal experience. Well, you literally turned to me and said, I'm done whenever you're ready. And I said, well, for posterity's sake, I'm glad we continued because we got to okay scenes at the end, but we we're just treading water. I mean, we were just telling stories. We were talking about how you, you you're I was talking about a, a situation with Kevin Spacey in my past. And that's not what you all think, <laughs> Yeah, but we were just telling stories. Well, you were t- talking about how your uh, geometry with your daughter. <laughs> yeah. This is what we were doing instead of watching the film, which is completely telling. And I think the part that's killing me the most is this David Fincher film. Yeah. I love Seven. I love the game. I love Fight Club. I love Zodiac. I love the social network. I like House of Cards. I like Mindhunter. I like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And, sure. and yeah. this is what he's turned out next. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... I like Panic Room. Like, I'll say it. I don't care. I didn't even like Benjamin Button, but I'd watch that a hundred times before, you know, this. At it least just, I wasn't having a conversation about scalene triangles. For the thing, you know, I put I put these guys on such a pedestal, you know, whether it be Nolan or Denny, Denny Villeneuve, Fincher, Spielberg, Scorsese, and Fincher has obviously been taking his time and choosing his projects by what he wants to do. And he's at a state in his career where he can say yes or no and he can make something happen with the snap of his fingers but then we get this like i I would much rather get just literally anything else than this from him so let's get to like kind of the finale of the film because it kind of does come together so okay so sinclair uh no up to sinclair lewis someone else entirely upton sinclair loses this election after this propaganda smear by the studio that mank wasn't on board with and through some crafty editing, we kind of see him kind of coming around. But like I said, not in a way that pays off nearly enough for me, especially investing two and a half hours in a film that um, looks good. Lipstick on a pig is something we say all the time. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm not getting the payoff that, like you said, we're making Citizen Kane, arguably the greatest film ever made. And the payoff has to, it has to land. And it, and it doesn't, but... What we do get is is these two scenes at the end. So uh, they're having, is it a birthday party or just a dinner party or a costume, costume party? party? Weird costume party. You see, Hollywood was weird back in the day. They're, just, they're dressing up as circus people. <laughs> hey, how come Todd Browning wasn't invited to this party? <laughs> Google gobble, Google gobble. We accept they're one of us. <laughs> and Mank shows up, um, as he always does, you know, drunk as hell. Mm-hmm. And kind of just makes a mockery of their of their event. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, this production and that, and it could have been good if she was in it or this and that. And he comes in just blitzed out of his Hammered. mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, first of all, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, like I'll get, I'll get drunk at like a social thing or, or you, you know what? And I had my college days, but like I can never just like recall a time just showing up to like a social function and just, being like him, never stumbling about, sitting at a table. They're eating like <laughs> whitefish <laughs> and wine, oh, and he's just pounding them back. Yeah. There was a telling scene to me to kind of echo his alcoholism, which would be an even more interesting movie than what this is. 
when they go to the Randolph estate at the beginning and um, the waiter brings Mankiewicz, uh, like some glasses of champagne, he picks two off the table and his wife reaches for one, but he takes one and then puts the other one on the piano because that's his second one for later. Yeah. That's an alcoholic. You know it. And I, I like that. And they just, they just don't go into it. So we have this scene here and you know, they're talking about that and it's the moment when this is like 1937. It's a few years after this election aspect of the film. And he just lets him have it. And this kind of interesting parallel to Don Quixote and Sancho Panza <laughs> into Louis B. Mayer, who's also been alluded to being a bit of a penny pincher and a bit of an asshole. And, uh, not a bit. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Yeah. Uh, and William Randolph Hearst. And I kind of like what those two guys are wearing. And then compared to like what Mank's doing, he's just going around the table and he's just saying, you know, this, and you aspire to do this and you won't fulfill on this. And you like, you not one per- person will be the, the cult will be two. He lays into them and like, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's a well say. And you're right. Gary Oldman is such the <laughs> thespian in this sequence. For as much as this scene's working and everything that Jesse said, I agree with. I want to give everybody a snapshot of what we're doing. We are taking the pitch for Citizen Kane in the guise of Cervantes's Mon of La Mancha with William Randolph Hearst playing the role of Don Quixote. Inspired by and pissy with the political leanings of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Now, as messy as that seems, and it is messy, and and really underdeveloped because sort of the man of La Mancha and, and Cervantes Quixote character just kind of show up out of the blue chasing windmills of whatever the hell the windmills are in this movie. <sighs> That's funny. <laughs> it works, I think, because you and I were so bereft of anything that we could latch onto that resembled something of interest regarding film by default, this became the big moment. And this is the important beat of the story. This is the crisis conflict resolution, or this is, strangely enough, when they come to find out that William Randolph Hearst has been paying Mank's salary. Mm-hmm. Jesse, this just occurred to me. Yeah. Is that the second act reversal? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. I think it is, At huh? At the end of the movie. <laughs> Oh my gosh, so we have just finished the second act in the his the longest second act in the history of cinema then, dude. Mm-hmm. And as that, w- that in and of itself is interesting. Because, I mean, that scene's good, and then he pukes up the wine and the fish, and you and I can smell it through the TV, because that's a terrible, terrible... That would have been, been disgusting. Yeah, yuck. But you're like, here you have a man who you have kind of were on the same side with, but then through the discourse of this situation, you kind of are at odds with him, and here's the moment. Here's the moment where you have that that resolution, the 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 reversal recognition of, yeah, you hate this man, but he's also the reason you're making movies too. Yeah, he's paying for the life you live, mm-hmm. and that's interesting. But it's too late. It's too late. There's four minutes left of the movie, <laughs> and it, not only yeah, exactly. Not only is it too late, but it's with a bunch of stuff that you and I normally, if you and I were sitting down writing, would be like, I'm not going to let you put that in that in the script. <laughs> I'm not giving you nine minutes of exposition oh, over God. a dinner table fight scene that's an argument with talking heads. Do you think Tarantino could have written this better? Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. 
But there is even the reference to pop culture in there. So, man, now that you say that, is this ripped off? Is this a Quentin Tarantino pop culture referenced-esque piece? Because, I mean, the Cervantes thing is kind of a version of Like a Virgin, isn't it? Maybe he would have made a better director in this thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, may- you know what? Maybe. Yeah. <clears throat> but we like this scene because at least we're finally getting some interaction or action on the screen that is not so subtle and and forgotten under the deluge of just vomit of dialogue that I want to know how long the script was. Yeah. The movie's two and a half hours mm-hmm. long. I bet you it's close to a 200-page script. <sighs> Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yikes. Um, it's just weird for me to say that, like, there's not a lot of interesting things in a David Fincher film, which in just about anything he's ever done, even Alien 3, can't believe I'm saying that. Mm-hmm. There's some things you can latch onto in, in those in those films. And in this one, there's like, what are you taking away from this this movie? Yeah. Who's watching this again? <laughs> yeah. Someone who's voting for themselves as a martyr. Yeah. Well, well, now we get into like the Oscar bait thing, which is such an issue with independent and uh, big budget studios, which is they, they just have such a, a, a quota of making movies for this particular time of the year. And there's some good stuff in there sometimes. But then you get stuff like this when like nothing sticks the landing. We're just checking boxes and we're just th- those Oscar bait films like boil down to one word for me that the ones that don't deliver and the words boring. Yes. Well said. <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. I could name just so many off the top of my head, but. Uh-huh. It's it's a shame. And then this is kind of juxtaposed with Orson Welles, who we've established that the man that they've cast is really good at it, comes to meet Mankiewicz saying, hey, the script's finished. And then Mank says, I want some credit on this thing with you. Orson Welles flips out. I mean, we get to see the ego in full effect. I mean, he trashes the room, which is one of the great sequences in Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane. Yeah. So it's a shame. It's it's the moments that resonate the most are at the tail end of the movie when we've already checked out an hour earlier and we're catching glimpses of the film we wanted to see. Right. And, you know, we, we wrap up with, you know, I feel like they underdeveloped, you know, the, the nurse character and the Marion Davies character too. I thought those could have been interesting foils to Mankiewicz and his pursuit of writing this film and even, and his wife as well. I mean, you said like, there's some interesting stuff there, but like not going anywhere. The interesting thing with his wife, which is also could have been a cool story, is she sort of allows him these platonic affairs that he has with whatever starlet's on set at the time. And in this particular case, it's William Randolph's Hearst girlfriend, Marion Davies, who I think is the inspiration, I don't think, is absolutely the inspiration for the female lead in Orson Welles' The Citizen King. Oh, absolutely. I don't remember what her name is in that. Um, But the showgirl who does write, who then kind of falls in love. And here's the thing about that. The two of them strike up a pretty solid friendship through this film. I might border on a Scarlett Johansson, Bill Murray, and Lost in Translation Is kind it? of unspoken attraction there. Her name's Susan in Citizen Kane. You're right. There yeah. you go. Thank you. And he absolutely eviscerates her at the end of this film mm-hmm. for no good reason other than his own inability to love and protect the people that have endeavored with, and I mean this, all of his bullshit, Mm because there's plenty of bullshit that goes on with Mick. Not only is he boring, but he's drunk all the time. He died. He killed himself by the bottle. 55. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I don't even know where I was going with that now, other than well, we're talking this about is, it was just underdeveloped. Yeah. This is your hero, Jesse. Mm-hmm. So you've underdeveloped the hero characteristics of him and highlighted the traits in him that are the least redeemable. Yeah. I mean, the film ends with what could have been an even better ending in a, a better crafted film, which is the two of them winning the Academy Award for Best Screenplay, which was the only thing that Citizen Kane won. <laughs> yeah, shockingly. In all those years. What year was that? Is that Miss Minerva or is that... Uh, no, that's How Green Was My Valley, wasn't How Green it? Was My oh, Valley, yeah. yeah. Which wow. is a good movie. Right. It's no Citizen Kane. No. So the film ends with this tumultuous thing we got to see for five minutes finally come together to make arguably the greatest film ever made. And they, there was something they could take away with that. And like the text at the end of all these based on a true story films kind of fills us in on what happened. I mean, Mankiewicz didn't write a damn thing the rest of his career and then died. Was that fives, uh, 12 years later. Mm-hmm. And that's the most interesting part of the movie. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we've just been like treading water, getting to this, not even I'm drowning. You know, the part that struck me in this for who we want to have as the the sidekick in this, if we're going to do the man of La Mancha bit, then. No. Oh, and John Houseman? Well, sort of. I want to know more about that. Okay, sure. That's interesting. <laughs> but if, if we're going to assign roles in this, and then the Don Quixote character would then, of course, have to be her, um, not Hurst, um, Mank. What if his Sancho is Groucho Marx? Think about it in the context of the social and political <laughs> referential nature of this, the mm-hmm. name of that character, and then the little bit that he's spoken about as being literally the most miserable man on the planet. Mm-hmm. But if Mank sidles up to him and Groucho Marx is the humanizing element, then you know what else you're getting that this movie tried to do but didn't? Is I'm getting an acknowledgement of someone from that golden era or pre-golden era of Hollywood that's wildly recognizable. Mm-hmm. Groucho Marx. And a genius. And a genius. <laughs> I care about Groucho Marx. Yeah. I don't care about Houseman so much. Yeah. I don't, I don't, and I care about Orson Welles, but they forgot to do any part of the movie with him that really mattered till the last six minutes. That's like a fictional movie. I would, I would watch that. There was so, yeah, there's so many obvious places that they could have developed interest. Mm-hmm. Him on the phone with Groucho Marx or Groucho Marx coming by on occasion to teach him how to, middle finger of the system and talking about how now that we're moving into the golden age of Hollywood and now we're into talkies, my career's over and what does it mean? And don't you remember duck soup? And it, you know, like all of that stuff, there's so many other ways that they could have gone. And with an insistence upon showing from the writer's point of view, how knowledgeable they are of the players in that era, they forgot or he forgot to make any one of them fucking matter one little bit. Yeah. And that truly is my big takeaway from this. None of them matter. Yeah. And the two that should matter the most also don't, which yeah. would be Mank and Wells. Yeah. That's th- there you go. That's, that's my final nail in the coffin. That's the film. I got I have nothing else to say. Um What's your favorite tasting note of Mank? I will say this the guy that plays Wells. Is terrific. He looks like him. He's got the voice down. He sounds like him. He's got the pantameter right. I think all of that is spot on. And that probably, for all of the Oscar buzz that this is going to get, and lock it down, everybody, on January, what are we, 16? What is today? 
on January 16, Matt and Jesse's prediction is this will be all over everything having to do with the Oscars. That's the one that is probably deserving, but it also shouldn't get it because he's only in the movie for five scenes. So any scene with him is your favorite tasting. Yes. Film. Okay. Yeah, I'll say that that kind of the 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 ribbing litany of Hearst and, and uh, Louis B. Mayer is well done. It's well shot. It's well acted. It's my favorite scene. I just hate that it's it's at the end of the movie and it's like something to finally like say yes, you're doing something like that. I'm interested in. Uh, is <laughs> what's the oh my god moment of Mank. Everything else leading up to that? <laughs> well, I didn't know the story of Mank's auto accident. Mm. And the oh my God moment that I thought is when they are showing the effects of whoever he's riding with in that car, which I'm sure is some Hollywood player that Fincher didn't care to develop to any extent there, mm-hmm. who's essentially lamenting over a love letter and trying to decode the ending of it to Mank gets them two in a car wreck. And they're pulling one of the bodies up on that kind of gurney thing. I thought, I was like, oh my gosh, the guy that he was with is going to die in this car wreck over love. But nope, he didn't die. He just <laughs> broke his leg. So for a, for a moment, it was almost that goodness, yeah, jaws of life thing pulling that stretcher. I don't even know what you'd call that. That casket stretcher thing yeah. out of the car. What, what, I don't even know what that thing's called. Yeah, it's just close enough. The Pull. bassinet for the injured. <laughs> <laughs> That's so bad. Oh, goodness. Uh, mine would have to be... Oh, the puking of the fish. Like, that was just... You did have a response to that. That was so... Well, I don't like puke in general. What if it smells like white wine and fish? That would... I don't know how the rest of the people weren't all dry heaving at that moment. Yes. Like, I would have seen that. I got a great story I have to tell you, Matt. Okay. Uh, My senior year in high school, uh, in my English class... Oh, no. uh, You had to, like... You know, you got to go tell the teacher, hey, can I go to the bathroom? I got to go to the nurse. Like, (laughs) you couldn't just, like, get up and leave the class. Like, this isn't, like, what the hell is this? Right. And this girl just gets up and leaves, and the teacher's like, uh, I can't even remember her name, but she was. He's like, he's like, excuse, where are you going? You're going to the bathroom? Excuse me, can you tell me where you're going? Yaks Ugh. all over the front door Ugh. and leaves, and it closes in the room oh, with us. No, and the rest of the class was just like, <gasps> and like we're like we're trapped, we're trapped. <laughs> like, like we had to like call custodian immediately because like <sighs> you could tell everyone was getting white. The smell. I couldn't believe she did that. And she like left us in there with it. It was just like <laughs> such a dick move. And I, you can't I, even stay in here with what you made. Oh, that was awful. Like oh. I'll never, that was, and like, it was, it was a moment much like how this sequence is where I was like, I can believe in like unified, like puking and dry heaving. It can happen. And it should have happened in that scene. <laughs> yes, it should have. <laughs> so yeah, that's my, that's my, oh my God. Is there a master distiller on Mank? I mean, you said it earlier. The only—I don't think uh, Gary Oldman's bad. I just don't care about the character. I guess whatever Mank was supposed to be, he probably delivered. And that's pretty standard fare for um, Gary Oldman, isn't it? I'm going to give it to him too. And maybe this is just a testament on how great he is as an actor. Gary Oldman could sleep his way through a role, and it'd probably be pretty good. I think you're right. <laughs> he played drunk. He was really good at drunk. He is. He's really good at doing that, stumbling around, slurring his words, uh, being immobile. From Commissioner Gordon to Mank to Winston Churchill, he has to Dracula. Guy's got a lot of range. Fifth Element, Serious Black, Tinker Tailor, Leon Soldier the Spy. Professional. 
um, Axel in True Romance. The guy's a chameleon. I'm telling you, like yeah. Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious. You just took it. Yep. He's he's one of my favorites. And sure. When you hear a film by David Fincher starring Gary Oldman, I mean, how could you not get excited about that? Like, you should just be like, yes, I can't wait to see it. And then you see it and you're like, oh, yeah. How are you going to rate and grade Mank? We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. So during the viewing, I got a text that was, how's the film from my better half? Okay. <laughs> and so I'll read to you what I sent her. Okay. Think Hail Caesar, but black and white and overindulged in its own importance regarding geopolitical philosophy through an alcoholic writer who they are portraying as a cad who takes on numerous platonic affairs with Hollywood starlets in the making of Citizen Kane. Awful. That's the finish. It's awful. Uh, the movie that was trying not to be a bad film. So this is the purposely make a bad film. LXG battlefield earth. Kind oh of yeah. 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 Is, is, is serenity. Like it's not even close. <clears throat> we have a challenger. This movie was atrocious. I'm not going to say the two lines that I always say, because <laughs> we, I don't have to say them because you actually lived it with me. Can I say it? Go for it. I was really glad when it was over. <laughs> And had it not been for the podcast, I wouldn't have finished it. And I asked you if we could please stop watching it and saying we could have a first on Rice Smile, which was this is the first movie we've actually never hey, finished. Man, I'm, I, I personally, but the, I guess that speaks to my film code because even as atrocious as something gets, I've never walked out of a movie like you do. Like I literally sit because I have to experience the rest of whatever the hell they're trying to do. I'll never watch it again, but like sign still delivered, it's done. Uh, so that's why I was like, I was like, no, well, I'll persevere for us at least so we can at least talk about it. But I'm with you. I'm going to say, well, minus it's teetering on rock gut. Uh, the production aspects, the the look, the feel, the score, the acting is all really good. It's just not the movie I wanted to see. I mean, when you pitch me, this is this insp the story inspirational of how Herman Mankiewicz wrote Citizen Kane and getting that made. That sounds interesting to me. And then you see it and you're like, oh, that ain't interesting at all. Like, <laughs> I yeah. think we came up with two or three scenarios of way more. I want to see this movie. Who knows if they ever, <laughs> if he was inspirational, Groucho Marx, he probably wasn't. But I want to see a Groucho Marx, Herman Mankiewicz team up about writing Citizen Kane. Like, even if it's not real, that sounds better. Yeah. Like, you have to be careful with biopics when the source material is interesting, but it's not going to fill two hours. You, you do have to spice it up a bit and determine if this is even worth making. I think there's a reason this didn't see the light of day until now and a uh, streaming service like Netflix. We can hide behind quarantine all we want. And then there's the truth. Yeah. Here's the other thing that I just real, I just realized mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about prequels. Mm-hmm and how by definition they're anticlimactic because you already know what the end result is going to be. This is a prequel. We know what Citizen Kane was, and we know some of the stories behind the making of it. Somehow they managed to take the creation of Darth Vader through Anakin Skywalker and make it worse. They took Junior Thanos before he'd acquired the gems and be prior to the snap and made him worse. Well, when you do a pre you, the road to get there then to the material... Has to be incredibly interesting. Has to be. Yeah. 
And again, like that's the trick, isn't it? If you take something that is Darth Vader or the end of half of humanity or Citizen Kane mm-hmm. and you tell a less enduring story, which I'm going to acknowledge is huge task to accomplish, like to make that more interesting than what the final result was. You just leave everybody high and dry and then to mail it in in the fashion that they did on this. Um, yeah, like I don't think I actually said it, but it's 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 rot gut. It's the rottest of the rot gut. And I wouldn't even say they mailed it in. I mean, there was some concertable effort to make it look good and presented well. It's just, I think people could watch it and literally say two words. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, if you choose to watch it, I would tell everybody burn through like the first 45 minutes and then watch the last 15 and you won't miss any part of the movie. Yeah. What a review. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Matt. I Cheers, love Susie. it. Let's put that on a t-shirt. Uh, <laughs> let's wrap up with our nightcap. that era of jet like big band like swing music oh, like yeah. that's good stuff yes all righty so the film we hope we had <laughs> to get was the trouble production aspects and inspiration on the writing of citizen kane and the making therefore of it um i think this can be done well so my question to you matt is what is the troubled film production that you think would make a good film to see on the big screen my gosh, where do we go with that? So many great stories. So many. And the research into it was so much fun to do. But I'm going to go with what we've discussed a little bit before. Mm. And maybe we do someday. Okay. Because I think this director has a ton of successes and failures in the same kind of making of films. And I'm talking about none other than Robert Altman. Mm. And I'm talking about Popeye. Mm. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I want you to take everything that you've heard about Robert Altman and consider it with all of his very strange behavior and add tons and tons of cocaine <laughs> and Robin Williams on a lot of that cocaine to make what is a reimagining of a really known and established fictional pop icon yeah. popeye yeah, i like popeye cartoons yeah me too yeah. everyone knows popeye <laughs> add shelly duvall and a giant octopus with i believe burgess meredith making an appearance too right Did i just see in that i gotta say this for what you think that movie is and it's a musical <laughs> as a musical it's a musical that movie blows Except so it's not burgess meredith it's, it's ray watson Oh, yeah, uh, Mr. Hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mr. Hand. That movie blows so hard. It is so hard to watch because it's not what you think it is. Like, as a kid especially, I mean, how many kids went to see Popeye at, I think, what is that, 82? Um, yes. 80, 1980. And we're just so disappointed by how boring and, like, just insane the movie is. And on top of it, as bad as it is, it's kind of like watching 
a train wreck in slow motion. And that's not to revel in anybody's death. I'm not saying that. So minus the mortality element. Yeah. You, there's no way you can't but watch this thing just huh. implode with every syllable that is uttered. I like watching that. Shelley Duvall singing is so bad. <laughs> but olive oil is kind of bad. And it's actually really well cast with her, to be honest. She kind of fits. Oh, yeah, that's a great cast. The guy that's going to eventually be Max Headroom, Bill Irwin, is in that. It, it's... <sighs> It was on. Can Netflix. we do Popeye some? Even yeah. if it's just a one-off, well, we we should do that. Or we, maybe Altman. We'll just do a trouble production cast because some of these movies I'm about to mention, I would love to talk about as well. So there's a lot, but I'm that one. Great choice. That one seemed like that would be a really fun watch. Great choice. And if anything got boring like that happened in this movie, you could just put a whole bunch of cocaine in it, and all of a sudden <laughs> it became exciting. Then you have the Wolf of Wall Street. Great choice, Popeye. That's, okay, that's hilarious. Okay, let's hear yours. I have two honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. I talk about Apocalypse Now a lot, so it's not my choice, but. Yeah. The making of that movie. They made a whole documentary just about the making of it. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. Uh, Twilight Zone, the movie. Oh, man. Was, I hadn't thought about that. another one. Like, just the tragedy. Multiple that, deaths on that set, oh, yeah, right? It's, it's such a story. Yeah. That 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 kind of befell. How many people died on that set, Jesse? Three. It was Three, actor yeah. Vic Morrow and, and two kids by the malfunctioning helicopter. How about that? Vic Morrow is, is uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's father. So, yeah, I consider that Waterworld was another one. Oh, yeah. For uh, sure. But the two I'm going to pick are a little less talked about, but the story is equally interesting. One is one of the, the silent film epic that has yet to be seen, actually. And it's a film called Greed, which is an adaptation of McTeague yep. uh, made by Eric von Stroheim, who's actually an actor in Sunset Boulevard. Right. The butler. Allegedly... At one point, this film totaled 27 hours and then down to 19 and then down to 12 and then down to four and then down to two. Wow. They were just like, trim that thing, trim it, trim it, trim it. And the danger of doing that of that time is it's all gone. The footage is just scooped up and tossed in a trash. I've seen the two-hour version in a film class. And then they Turner Classic Movie was able to put together a four-hour version, which is actually interspliced with uh, still photography of what the scenes are because mm. the footage is gone. Mm. Uh, people have said that they've they've seen some of the longer versions. They said it's it's one of it's one of the the great tragedies of filmmaking. But Stroheim took his actors into the Mojave Desert with 150 degree temperatures to film some of those sequences. The production making aspect is so fascinating to me. I would love to see a film about that. Good choice. And what I've seen is actually decent. It's like it's a pretty good silent film. And this is your honorable mention. No, no, no that's one. That's one of my picks. Okay, I gotta have one B two. Okay, sure. That's a great choice. What? Yeah, I yeah. want to see that too. <clears throat> it's a film called Fitzcarraldo, made by Werner Herzog. Mm-hmm. And so, for those of you, it's based on a true story about a man who built a steamship and then decided to not assemble it where it needed to be, but to build the ship and then literally carry it with his. Uh, workers through the mountains. Oh, wow. Literally carry a ship through the, through the mountains. Yeah, may as well be sorcerer. The making of the film, they did the same thing. Wow. Really? <laughs> and if you know anything about Werner Herzog, and he's a great German filmmaker, he had a an actor that his Johnny Depp of sorts was an actor by the name of Klaus Kinski. Mm-hmm. Notorious. Cat people. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hard to work with, uh, uh, actor 
to the point where they're literally moving this ship. Extras and crewmen are literally moving a, a, a fully functional steamship over a mountain. First of all, that's insane. But then Klaus Kinski was like literally like a sociopath on the film, and the crew members were, went up to the director and said, hey, do you want me to kill Klins, uh, Kinski for you? Because I'll, I'll do it because he sucks that much. Wow. And they had already made a movie the year prior called Aguirre, The Wrath of God, where him and Kinski got in a fist fight like daily. I want to see the making of those movies because it's there. It's it just as interesting as actually watching the movie. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Those are three good choices. Yeah. So it's yeah. Sometimes that's why I love reading. Like if you go down a Wikipedia hole on the production of a movie, sometimes you'll be like, whether it's the Lost Weekend or any of those ones, I think you'll be surprised on like how hard it is to make something, and then when things go so bad, what they turn out is a miracle. This is the literal definition of a miracle. Truly. <laughs> For Apocalypse Now to be as, as I think, as a masterpiece as any of them can be is nothing short of a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> right. When Marlon Brando shows up to your set 100 pounds overweight, it doesn't know his lines and doesn't know what he's doing. You're in a huge predicament. And your lead actor has a heart attack and a typhoon just came and wrecked your whole set and you financed your vineyard on the production of this movie, get me out of there. And you haven't even started principal photography yet. I haven't even made the movie yet. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. exactly. That's great. Great choices, man. Good. Thank you. You too. Well, that's Mank from 2020. You can watch it on Netflix right now or don't. Run or don't. (laughs) Don't. It's like Fletcher and Whiplash. Save your travel receipts for for your trip back or don't. Or don't. I don't give a shit. I don't really give a shit. Yeah, but we still have some new films in the pipeline that we would like to talk about one made by the studio that we haven't done this before an animated film. We haven't talked about this animation studio before Pixar. Boom, boom. But they had a great release on Christmas Day along with Wonder Woman 84. We're going to build up and talk to uh, talk about that. But this is the films of Pixar animation studios. Part one of what could be an ongoing thing because they always turn out pretty decent films. I think we'll call this cask a uh, common term is from page to screen. And what we'll call this is from Pixar to screen. Oh, good. I like that. So that's going to be the next three films. And so up first, um, which came out earlier this year yeah. and released to Disney plus uh, onward. I, I think have- this is the last film that I saw theatrically released oh, okay. in a theater. Oh, okay. I can't wait to do this. Yes, you I and I are going to have so much to talk about. Next I haven't week. seen it. So I'm, yes. ex- I'm excited to, to get into this. This is going to be, this is going to be a fun cast. Cause you know, Voice acting and regular acting is two totally different things, but both kind of equally important. Like mm-hmm. I'm excited to talk about animated cinema because it's something that I've wasn't always a fan of growing up, but I've really come around to it in later years. Yeah. So yeah, sign me up. We're gonna have so much to talk about next week, Jesse. Excellent. Cheers. 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 Thank you to the listeners. Thank you to two years. Uh, if you want to leave us any comments, feedback, hit us up on uh, any of social media platforms or at ricemileproductions at gmail.com. Any ratings on any of those social media platforms certainly help us out. Help get the the word out to other people just browsing those sites. So please hit us up on those. We're forever grateful for uh, anything that 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 you send us. So we are. So thank you. So cheers, Matt. I got to get going. I got to go. I'm gonna finish off the rest of that bottle so I can. Uh, no, I don't scratch all of that. I'm gonna go put on Citizen Kane because I'd much rather watch that than Mango. <laughs> well, I would usually have some quick one-liner, but if you're gonna fire up Citizen Kane, maybe I'll stick around and we'll finish off this bottle together. There you go, guys. I mean this from every piece of me 
the fact that we're two years in and some 70,000 plus downloads in, I just have to sit there at starry-eyed wonder and revel in what was and what is. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, I appreciate your ears every week personally. I know Jesse does too, but Mm -hmm. speaking just for myself, Godspeed, everybody. Thank you for all of the endeavors, good and bad, frustrations. It does mean the world to me. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and review on any of those sites. And if you want to leave us some comments or some feedback, hit us up on any of our social media platforms or at Productions at gmail.com. Mink is property of Netflix and Netflix International Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. I am very happy to accept this award in the manner in which the screenplay was written, which is to say, in the absence of Orson Welles. How's that? How come he shares credit? Well, that, my friend, is the magic of the movies. (laughs) 